6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, Revelation Part 1. Let's find out a little bit about Queen Jezebel. For this, you, you would turn into 1 Kings 21. She did a lot of things. First of all, King Ahab had everything he wanted. He's a king. He runs the place. But there was a little guy by the name of, the name of Naboth, Naboth, excuse me, that had a little vineyard, and he loved that vineyard. And Ahab wanted the vineyard, and Naboth didn't want to sell it. And King Ahab had a fit. He went into a pout. And Jezebel says, hey, let me handle it for you. What does Jezebel do? Well, she arranges an inquisition. She got some false accuser to accuse Naboth of some uh, improprieties and had him put to death and took his lands in the name of the king and said, Hey, Ahab, here's my gift to you. So false witnesses, condemned, executed. And Naboth's vineyard was seized for the king. Does this sound familiar regarding history? where you contrive inquisitions to gain lands and wealth for the church? That's the parallel here. And I want you to notice God promised Jezebel that she would be cast into the tribulation. I'll come back to that a little later. And Jesus continues, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the range of the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, wow, as they speak, I will put on, uh, upon you no other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Then he has the promise of the overcomer. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. See, they apparently wanted power over the nations before. That wasn't appropriate then, but if they hang in there, he'll give it to them later. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. You notice now the promise of the overcomer is put in the body of the letter, not a postscript. Follow me? See the difference? First time we've seen that. Let's go to Sardis. Under the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You know, you look at the title, you can just infer by now that the title gives you a clue as to what the remedy is. Whatever Sardis' problem is, it's apparently the Holy Spirit that is the repair. Jesus says, I know thy works. Whoops. Where's the commendation? Usually the commendation comes first, right? There is no commendation in this letter. Ooh, this hurts. Many Protestant commentators make a big thing trying to tie Thyatira to the Roman Catholic Church. That's easy to do, by the way. If that's true, then Sardis is the Reformation. Sardis has nothing good said about it. Ooh, careful. 
He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Ooh. The word name echoes all through this letter. Name, name, name. That's a synonym for the denomination. His exhortation, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that they are ready to die. For I have not found thy works complete or perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. Really? Apparently if you are watching, it won't be as a thief. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Is the denominational church asleep today prophetically? How strange. The exhortation continues. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Who is they? The few names. Not everyone. Then the promise of the overcomer. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then the closing salutation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Ask any church, and they'll tell you they're, they're part of Philadelphia, of course, because it's the one that has nothing bad said about it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, by the way, means brotherly love, as you probably know that. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. This is the missionary church. When God opens a door, the door is open, like it is in Asia right now. Boy, exciting. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. There they are again. They say they are Jews or not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Man, that's pretty neat. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. No concerns, by the way. This is the commendation still going. But this verse, verse 10, is a key eschatological verse. What is Jesus saying to the church of Philadelphia? Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour or time of temptation or tribulation or testing. Not from, I won't keep you from the testing, I'll keep you from the time of the testing. See the difference? It's one thing to be protected through the, it's quite another to be protected from the time of. You see the difference? I'll keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. One of the things you'll discover as you study the book of Revelation, there are two groups of people, those that are saved and the earth dwellers. All the way through the book of Revelation, those that dwell on the earth are the losers. They're lost. So you don't catch it unless you read the whole book. You'll, you'll see that phrase again and again and again, them that dwell upon the earth. They don't just live on the earth. They don't happen to be physically on the earth. They dwell upon the earth. That's the concept. You and I are not earth dwellers. We may be here, but our allegiance is elsewhere. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. Here they're talking about dwell earth dwellers. I'll keep thee from the time of tribulation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's not us. For two reasons. We don't dwell on the earth, and secondly, we will be, that's what he's saying, we'll be raptured. 
It's a great, great passage. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You may not be able to lose your salvation, but you certainly can lose your rewards. Be careful about that. Then the promise to the overcomer, Him that overcometh I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is in the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There again, the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter. Then we get to the last one. Laodicea. Leo means people. Laodicea, it means rule. This is where the people rule. Really. I thought Christ is supposed to rule the church. No, these churches do market research to make sure they're user-friendly. These are churches that the people rule, not the Word of God. Let's see what Christ says about the letter to Laodicea. Unto the angel of the church of, Laod of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That doesn't mean He was created. That means He was at the beginning in the creation. We know that from Colossians. It's an interesting phrase, by the way. That title of Christ is used in only two letters. Used in this and it's also used in Colossians. I'll come back to that later. Jesus goes on, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Yuck. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. A friend of mine pointed out to me, you know, a lot of us are familiar with what we call the name it and claim it gospel. The people on television that raise money, you know, you're, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. And if you're in Christ, then you should be rich and wealthy. And it's the wealth, it's the wealth, you know, the, we call it the name it and claim it, the blab and grab it guys. I had a friend of mine say, you know, they're scriptural. I says, what? He rattled off some of the leaders that thing. He said, yeah, they're all scriptural. What do you mean? He says, sure. Because they say they're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's what they're saying, right? They have need of nothing. One of the prominent TV guys is worth a billion dollars on donations, his personal wealth. I wonder how he pulled that off. He knows not that he's wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked as far as Christ is concerned. These are the Laodiceans. His exhortation, notice, by the way, there's no commendation here, just concerns and exhortation. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, and thou, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. He's using that eometically, of course. You want riches and garments and ability to see, invest in me, not these worldly things. That's what he's really saying. He's using them idiomatically. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now we get into verse 20. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Scripture as you normally hear it. How many have heard this verse? Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Isn't that beautiful? That's a fabulous verse. It's used by evangelists all over the world when used as a single verse. That's legitimate. No problem. However, 
if you put this in the context of this letter, it's a scathing indictment. Why do I say that? Let's take a look at the church at Laodicea. Where is Jesus Christ? Outside, knocking to get in. And his invitation is not to the church. It's to an individual. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. It's individual. An invitation coming from outside the church to the individual. That's an indictment of Laodicea. You see, you see what I'm saying? He goes on then, promise to overcome. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. That's where Jesus is today. The day will come when the Father says, the Son, go get him. But that's where he is today. And then he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those are seven letters. Now you notice that each one of these letters typically had a name, a, t a title of Christ that was used, commendation, concerns, and exhortation. It's interesting that two letters had no, nothing good said about them. Sardis didn't, and Laodicea didn't. Those two letters are devoid of anything good. No, no A on their report cards. So if the Protestant commentators like to make mincemeat of Thyatira, they better take a good look at Sardis. <laughs> it's worse off, in a sense. And there are two letters that had no concerns. Smyrna, hey, you're doing fine, guy, just hang in there. And Philadelphia are the two star witnesses here. Isn't that great? In the first three letters, the promise to the overcomer is a postscript. In the last four letters, the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter. There's another distinctive of the last four letters I'll show you. Let's go at it another way. If we take these seven letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, Ephesus is descriptive of the apostolic church, strict on doctrine but forgot their first love. Smyrna is the persecuted church, suffering death, willingly being burnt alive for the sake of the gospel. And Pergamus is when the church marries the world, or the world marries the church. They were called to be separate, a testimony to the world, not to be part of it. So in Pergamus, the church marries the world. And that, of course, leads to what I'll call, for lack of a better term, the medieval church, inheriting the state church that uh, then pursues temporal power. And then we have the Reformation, which leads to what we might call collectively the denominational churches. And they, of course, we have, then we have the missionary church, and we have the apostate church that's forgotten what the name of the game is. Well, that's pretty exciting. Okay. What's interesting is this first three are a group. And um, the promises to the overcomer are postscripted. That suggests to me that they have a historical termination. These last four... The promises are in the body of the letter, which causes me to suggest that they endure to the end, historically. There's another thing that the last four letters have, the first three don't. Each one of the last four letters has an explicit reference to the second coming of Christ. It's alluded to in the letter. And it's conspicuous by the omission in the first three. But there's more to that. 
Thyatira is explicitly promised to go into the tribulation. Jezebel, I'll cast you into the, and all them that with, in, in bed with you into the great tribulation. Philadelphia is explicitly promised that it would not. It would be delivered from the time of trial. So it would seem that Philadelphia is consistent in that sense, that it's raptured out. What happens to Sardis and Laodicea is problematic. I suspect it obviously depends on individual issues, as they all do, actually. Something else that's kind of interesting, in Revelation 2 and 3 we have seven letters penned by Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13 we have seven parables given to the, the uh, disciples, and the Lord says these are things hidden from the foundation of the world, which means they're not in the Old Testament, it means they're about the church. And it's interesting how these seven parables map against the seven letters. Let's just take a couple to make the point, because our time is short. The third letter to Pergamos is comparable to the mustard seed. Mustard seeds, if you've been in Israel, you need the little bushes that grow about two, two, three feet high that are yellow all over the fields in the spring. Those are mustard, mustard plants. Little tiny seed grows to plant about three feet high. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree that is so big that the birds of the air lodge in its branches. Have you seen a bird lodge in branches in a three-foot-high thing? No. And furthermore, the birds in the parables in the sower are devils, are the devil's ministers. If you're looking for the ministers of Satan, don't overlook the pulpits. That apparently what's happening in, in Pergamos. Thyatira. In the one case it was the woman Jezebel in the letters. In Matthew 13 it's the woman in the leaven. And you need to understand the Jewishness of this. The leaven was the fellowship offering. The woman put leaven in the, in the fellowship offering, which if you're Jewish you'd gasp in horror. Leaven is always a type of sin. So again, there's a parallelism, if you will, between Jezebel's false doctrine and the woman of the leaven in the parables there. Let's skip to Philadelphia. Uh, the parallel one there is the pearl of great price. Jesus talks about the pearl of great price. Very strange idiom for Jesus to use because he was Jewish. An oyster is not kosher. What is he talking about here? The pearl. What a beautiful analogy. The pearl is the only jewel that is a response to irritation that grows by accretion and is removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. Whew. Talk about the church being raptured. Man, there you go. Anyway, you can go all through these, but some are a little technical. They give you the flavor of this. Let's go one step further. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. So did Paul. He wrote to Ephesus. That one's easy. They parallel pretty well. He wrote, Smyrna, he wrote a letter to Smyrna. Paul wrote to Philippians. Joy through suffering. Remember? Pergamos. Is there, a, a, is there a church that Paul wrote to that was worldly? Sure to be a Corinthian was a, was a way of calling a person a fornicator. And of course, Thyatira, religious externalism, the call out of that being Galatians. Sardis, the denomination, the Word of God. would be We have the definitive statement of the Gospel. Philadelphia, Thessalonians, parallel to that, the rapture and all of that. And Laodicea and Colossians were suburbs of one another. They were explicitly instructed to exchange letters. Interesting how the... let you play with that. Remember we had an outline. The things which thou hast seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter. Vision of Christ was chapter 1, the things you have seen. The things which are, the seven churches we've just gone through. Then we get to the third section, the things which shall be hereafter. The word hereafter 
in the Greek is metatauta, means after these things. We've been through chapters 2 and 3. When you get to chapter 4, the first word is metatauta, after these things in, in the Greek. Chapter 4, we'll, when we get there, we'll open up. After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I'll show you things which must be metatauta. There's that term again. So from here on is the third section of the book. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Wait a minute, I thought these lamps were on the earth. Not anymore. Come up hither. John is treated to a glimpse ahead of what it'll be like at the rapture. That's really what we're seeing here. And the first voice I heard was a trumpet talking with me. The trumpet of God. And uh, when you get to chapter 5, is a very pivotal passage in the entire Scripture. John is up there in heaven, and he says, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals, written within and on the backside. You didn't usually read right on the backside of a scroll. It was the rough side. But if it was a title deed, the rules by which it could be opened were written there. This implies it's a title deed. That occurs in Jeremiah and elsewhere. John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals thereof? Word goes out, huh? Notice the strange verse 3. And no man in heaven, no man, it had to be a man. Why? It had to be a kinsman of Adam to be eligible to open his book. No man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look thereon. Now, you and I don't understand what's going on, but John did, because he says what in the next verse? I sobbed convulsively. I wept much, he said, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the scroll and uh, neither look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the scroll, neither to look thereon. So John understood this is tragic. This is scary, because no man, it took a man and no man was worthy to do this. So he's panicked. One of the elders said to me, Hey, weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood the Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. Who is this guy? A lamb? Yes. But what is he, how, what is he, what's his title? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is what Matthew spends his gospel establishing. The root of David. Yes, he was the lamb that had been slain. The lamb as it had been slain. Not a lamb, the lamb as it had been slain. The entire universe pivots on this historical event. The book of Leviticus lays down the specifications. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy, it was an achievement. And because of that achievement, there is a man eligible to take this title deed. That was God's plan from the beginning. And Satan's attempt to thwart that plan included trying to contaminate the human race to prevent a man being eligible to do this. So we have the apocalypse. The catastrophic end crisis is going to be in the next session. The spectacular reappearance of the King of Kings in His global empire will be the center point.
the internment of Satan in the Abuso, and we'll talk about that, and the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. That it's astonishing how few churches embrace this biblical view. And then, of course, the final insurrection, when Satan is finally released, and the final, fortunately, the abolition of sin. And we'll see a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem that concludes it. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Exciting passages of an exciting book. It's frustrating to try to summarize it so briefly, and yet there's a value in having the whole thing in view, so I submit that to you, but I do encourage you to undertake, when you can, a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the book of Revelation. If you do it properly, it'll take you into every other book of the Bible. It's a very, very, it's something you don't do in an hour or two, it's a lifetime pursuit. But I encourage you in that direction, because it will be a continual blessing. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just rejoice in getting a glimpse of the final chapters. We thank you that you've gone to such extremes that we might live. We thank you that there is a man right now, today, sitting on the throne. We thank you that he is worthy to open the seals and look thereon. We thank you that we are the beneficiaries of these extremes that you've gone to, that we don't deserve, but are we grateful for. Father, we would just pray that you would take our lives without any reservation. Illuminate that path before us. Let us know precisely what you'd have of each of us in the days that remain, that we might be more pleasing in your sight, that we might be more fruitful stewards of these opportunities, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, in whose name we commit ourselves this night. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.